Christmas, I've decided, can be a pretty untidy season. Those of us who are drawn toward things that are orderly can find it a bit stressful. Light straightens get tangled up and traffic gets jammed and calendars get full. At our house, there are containers stacked in odd corners. Cookie tins and chocolate boxes are strewn around the kitchen. And as charming as Christmas trees can be, adding one to our small 1920s style living room always crowds the other furniture and our cozy room loses its feng shui. And in many households, other kinds of messiness comes to the surface. Relationships are under greater stress. Family reunions can be dicey. Loss and grief stare us in the face. But why shouldn't it be that way? Why shouldn't it be? What gives us the idea that Christmas should be perfect? Shall we blame Courier and Ives? Picture-perfect scenes that have dominated Christmas cards for the last 120 years? Shall we blame the relentlessly cheerful and well-dressed entertainers singing carols on TV? We should all be thankful for the gospel accounts of Jesus' birth. They bring us back to earth real quick if we actually read them and think about what we are reading. Jesus had an extremely untidy Genesis. Now, an untidy Genesis might seem like a strange turn of the phrase, but I was struck in today's gospel that the writer of Matthew chose that very word, Genesis to talk about Jesus emerging on the scene. Genesis is a Greek word. Our Bible, of course, begins with a book of Genesis, you know. That title comes from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, meaning coming into being, emergence, the birth of something new. That's the word when God says, let there be light, land and sea, animals, etc. Literally, let them have Genesis. The word Genesis is not used very often in the New Testament. There's a more precise word for the birth of a baby. But Matthew chose to use Genesis when he wrote, verse 18, now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. He chose to say, I believe, the genesis of Jesus, deliberately, because he was talking about more, much more than certain events that happened in a Bethlehem stable. In fact, unlike Luke, where we get all the Christmassy details, Bethlehem, stable, shepherds, angels, and so forth, Matthew barely mentions the actual birth. If you noticed, he only says that it happened in about six words, no details. But what Matthew is very interested in telling us 
is about the kind of world that Jesus emerged into. He wants us to know what was going on in the life of the human family Jesus entered, what the larger social and political context was. And about that, we learn a lot from the Gospel of Matthew. In two weeks, we launch a a, um, several months series in, in this Gospel of Matthew, starting with the most fascinating and untidy genealogy you've ever read. That's the other place in Matthew where the word Genesis is used at the beginning of Jesus' family tree. To introduce his genealogy, Matthew 1.1 says, translated literally, the book of the Genesis of Jesus. You'll get all, all the details in that in two weeks. So immediately after listing the 42 messy generations between Abraham and Jesus, Matthew launches into the story of the social context that Jesus was born into. And it's untidy, to put it mildly. He starts the story with Joseph. Interestingly, Matthew is the only one who gives us a portrait of Joseph. From what we know of marriage customs in those days and from details in the text, the best assumption here is that Joseph and Mary were legally married, but they were not yet united as a couple. That is, the legal arrangement between the families had been made, the papers signed, but they were holding off starting their own household. Both were still with their parents. Maybe Joseph had to finish building the house that he and Mary would share. Maybe he still owed Mary's parents some money or property. But for whatever reason, they were not together as a couple, but they were legally bound. Only a divorce could change it. Mary's pregnancy at this stage created huge problems for both Joseph and Mary. Mary was at risk of losing all her financial security and becoming unmarriageable. Joseph was at risk of losing his honor and that of his family. But after a visit by an angel, Joseph took on that risk and decided to protect Mary and follow through with a marriage. Now that in itself is enough of a mess for us to call this an untidy Genesis. But that story is just a microcosm of the mess that the whole world was in. And just how fraught and fragile was the human community, the Jewish community, where Jesus emerged, where Jesus had his Genesis. Jesus was born into a hostile and dangerous world, ruled by a brutal and deranged and insecure King Herod. Herod ruled with an iron fist. There were numerous attempts to overthrow him, some by his own family. He didn't hesitate killing anyone who seemed to be a threat. He had three of his own sons executed and one of his wives. 
He was so insecure and so deranged that on his deathbed, so says the historian Josephus, he apparently ordered that a large group of prominent citizens be brought to his palace and executed when he died to make sure there would be national mourning instead of celebration when he died. His family did not carry through with that plan, thankfully. The Roman emperor crowned Herod with the title King of the Jews. But the Jews never accepted that title. Of course, Herod was not of David's line. So Herod knew, never knew, actually, when the Jews might try to overthrow him. So given all that, the next couple chapters in Matthew's story are not that surprising. Concerning Herod's rage when the three wise men didn't go back and report on the location of the child Jesus, this new so-called king of the Jews. Also not surprising, the story about his mass murder of children to try to make sure that Jesus did not grow to be an adult. As horrifying and repulsive as that tale is, for Herod, it was par for the course. It was not his first bloodbath, and it wouldn't be his last. This was the world where Jesus had his genesis. The one named Emmanuel, God with us. God with us into that world came this tiny, helpless, red and wrinkled, completely vulnerable, completely dependent baby already with a price on his head. Jesus, Jesus and his family became refugees, fled to Egypt, homeless, dependent on the goodwill of strangers in a foreign land. Why do we think we deserve a perfect Christmas? Why should we despair about the sorrows and fears we face at Christmas time when it comes around again in this messy world we live in? Everything about the story of Jesus' Genesis is messy. Everything. The stigma of Mary and Joseph's marital situation, the oppressive tax and census that Caesar ordered that brought them to Bethlehem to begin with, the poverty of them that relegated them to a barn out back to give birth in, their land being occupied by a foreign power, their deranged and violent king, their status as refugees seeking asylum, the massacre of the innocents, the religious infighting between different Jewish parties who had radically different visions for their future. But here's the thing. It's precisely into such a messy world that God had a new genesis. That God emerged as Emmanuel, God with us. You know, usually and historically, 
Saying God is with us is a way of saying everything's going our way. God's on our side. When fortune smiles on people, the assumption is God must be with them. Health and good fortune are held up as evidence of God's presence and blessing. But in Jesus, the opposite is the case. God makes a choice to come and be with us in the worst of times. When all hell seems to be breaking loose, there Emmanuel emerges. There love is born. There is the untidy genesis of Jesus who comes to save to heal, and to redeem. And we should be clear, this is not a new strategy for God. The first verses of the Bible, Genesis 1, 1, and 2, that we heard this morning, make clear that God's first move in creation, first move, was to enter the chaos and to be in the thick of it. Bringing about the Genesis of Shalom. We also heard the 23rd Psalm today where God is praised as the one who prepares a table in the presence of our enemies. So people of faith do not despair. Proclaim hope. Proclaim love. Boldly. The story of Jesus' untidy Genesis proves one thing, that God will stop at nothing to show us God's love. That God yearns to save us from sin and death. That God is intent to heal and restore a broken creation, to bring about a new creation shaped by justice, mercy, and love. One of my favorite Christmas poems is Risk of Birth by Madeleine Lengel. It's a short 12-line poem. You can look it up. I took six of the lines, roughly half the poem, and rearranged and added to them for our confession today. So please read it along with me in your bulletin or on the screen. O oh God, even in this season of hope, we confess our struggle to trust that your love is ready to be born in this world. With the earth betrayed by war and hate, while time runs out and the sun burns late, give us the courage to wait. While honor and truth are trampled to scorn, when is a good time for love to be born? Now is the time. Come, Lord Jesus, make this your home again. Though the inn is full on the planet Earth, 
and many wonder what life is worth, God's love still takes the risk of birth. <laughs>